1: My most frequently asked question on social media is easily, where do I buy sustainable underwear? And I totally get it. As much as I try to prioritise secondhand clothing first, I draw a line at pre-loved panties. This is where stripe and stare come in. They are the sustainable British brand who are behind the movement to make the underwear industry more environmentally friendly, as currently only 3% of the market is sustainably sourced. I am completely obsessed with their knickers, they're easily the comfiest pants I've ever worn. They're made using a sustainably and renewably sourced tree fibre, which is a production process that uses 95% less water than cotton. What's more, they're super transparent about their supply chains, having produced in one factory in china with the same team for over 15 years all of their employees earn over the fair living wage and are treated equally and fairly I am a little bit obsessed with Stripe and Stair panties and would love for you to try them for yourselves. I have an exclusive discount code for listeners. Just head to their website, which is stripeandstair.com and use the code Things 20 for 20% off. That's stripeandstair.com and code Things 20 Hello, welcome back to the podcast. Venetia here. It is Monday morning. In fact, it's Monday afternoon. It's now twelve twenty-nine, and I've been enjoying some quite big things recently. Some big things in life have been happening. I had my first vaccination last week. That felt like a very big thing. Two of my best friends got married. Another big thing. My first wedding since my own. So some big life events, and I'm now in the process of moving, which again, feels like another big thing, a big life event. Uh, I'm sat in my living room right now surrounded by boxes um, which is slightly stressful so this podcast is just the most welcome break from packing up I hope you're all doing really well thank you so much for being here and thank you for your support on the podcast over the past few weeks I love hearing from you and reading your messages and if you would like to have a message read out on the show you can just DM me on Instagram at ATSTpodcast would absolutely love to hear from you and if you're enjoying what you hear you can always leave a five star review on iTunes. That would be super helpful. I know podcasters talk about this all the time, but it really does make a big difference, especially to the podcasts, which don't have huge celebrity names or uh, big production teams behind them. So thank you very, very much for your support. I am absolutely thrilled that I got to interview one of my favourite writers, Atega Awagba, for today's episode of the podcast. I've been a fan of her writing for many years now. I've read all of her books. I've basically enjoyed everything she's ever written. I love her newsletter. Mm. I love her podcast. She is just... Pretty exceptional, to be honest. She is the author of the Sunday Times best selling Little Black book, A Toolkit for Working Women. I would really, really recommend it if you're in the working world, especially if you're self employed. I found it super helpful. And last year, she released Whites on Race and Other Falsehoods. It's a fantastic short essay. I would highly recommend both of these books. Atega is also a speaker, brand consultant, and founder of Women Who, a London-based multimedia platform aimed at creative women that operated from 2016 to 2020. She also hosts the culture and ideas podcast In Good Company. It's one of my favorites and I would really, really recommend it. Her forthcoming book is a part memoir, part cultural commentary called We Need to Talk About Money. It is being published on the 8th of July, which means it's available to pre-order now and it will come through your letterbox really, really soon. I absolutely loved this book. I underlined so much of it. I've reread parts of it already and I just think it's such an interesting way to frame a memoir. There's a lot of things about it that made me feel quite uncomfortable. I've been unpacking my privilege, especially my white privilege, for quite a few years now. But there are so many other layers uh, to my privilege. And uh, something that I've been really thinking about a lot recently, as a result of Otega's book, was the private education that I was very fortunate to experience. Now, obviously, I didn't choose my education. Uh, it was chosen for me by my parents because they felt it was the best thing for me. But I don't think I really understood just how life altering it was and just how it impacted s- so much of my life until I read this book. I've really, really been unpacking that privilege. And I find it uncomfortable, to be honest, like so much to do with my own privilege. A lot of it is really uncomfortable, but Otega has taught me that the most important thing is to be really open about the privileges that we have if we have them. There's a lot in this conversation, as I love hearing Otega's insights on pretty much everything, so I had quite a few questions for her, and she did not disappoint, honestly. She is just so intelligent and I really, really love this conversation. I hope you enjoy it. Here is the marvellous Atega Awagba on all the small things. Let us begin as we always do. I would love to hear, how do you start your days? Do you have any rituals you like to go through each morning? How are you beginning your days, Atega?
0: To be honest, my answer to this is just quite chaotic. I don't really have any kind of morning rituals. Like, I tend to wake up at quite odd hours anyway. So I might kind of get up at 5am um, and kind of just start working um, and just kind of answering emails. And then I might go back to bed for a little bit and then wake up properly, sort of close to sort of like eight or nine, and then just kind of carry on, have some breakfast. But I, I just kind of tend to work depending on my energy level. So that's kind of something that I love about being self employed and working from home. And I'm sure maybe other people are finding that now that a lot of people have pivoted to working from home. But I'm just very lazy in the mornings and I sort of like being able to just kind of decide to work for a couple of hours and then chill for a bit. And so there isn't really a morning routine. I always have a cup of tea. That's something I always start my days with. But apart from that it just kind of goes with the flow.
1: I love that. I think um especially as a woman, as I've got older, like I've obviously started to understand my cycle more and my energy levels more. And I completely agree, like having that freedom of being self-employed and choosing when you are kind of most creative or productive is just such a blessing. Yeah, definitely. I would love to talk about your new book, We Need to Talk About Money. I've read all of your books now and I just, I absolutely love all of them. Now this new one is a thought-provoking engaging and very personal memoir and it's framed in a really interesting way it's framed around your experience of money and also class work beauty sexism and racism I am really interested to know why do you think people but specifically British people in particular get so squirmy when it comes to talking openly about money and class
0: I mean, I think you've touched on something really important there, which is that Brits in particular are really bad about talking about money openly. I think the book is kind of written from a British point of view and looking primarily at Britain and I guess also kind of like Western societies. But definitely in the research I did, it became clear to me that Brits in particular just are very kind of closed off when it comes to talking about money. And I mean, I think in general, it's just because as a society, we tend to attach kind of this idea of sort of moral value to how much money people have so we and I, I include myself in this but we tend to kind of venerate people who are rich and wealthy and and you know it's kind of seen as an indicator of intelligence and being smart and being hard-working and being like a good person and then conversely we and especially the media really tends to demonize the poor and make it you know it's the people who don't have a lot of money are kind of blamed for it and it's seen as a failure, it must be because you're lazy and you don't work hard and you know you're stupid or whatever, which obviously isn't the case. There are so many structural reasons that go into determining who has money and, and who doesn't have money. But I think it's that idea of kind of moral value and moral worth that we tend to absorb. And it then becomes tricky to talk about how much money you do have or don't have and how you came about it because we judge people based on how much money they have and our own. Self esteem and self worth, you you know, is tied up in how much money we make, what we can afford to do, and what our house looks like, and what kind of car we drive. And even though I think there are conversations, you know, there are many more conversations now about wealth inequality, and I think, you know, being wealthy isn't necessarily seen as being an uncomplicated good. You know, there's a lot of like anti-billionaire sentiment now, and you Mm. know, people are kind of starting to question the system a little bit more. But overall you know we do attach these kind of moral values and assumptions to people's bank balances so it follows them that people are then nervous about kind of sharing their own situations and it's it's also just something that we don't have a lot of practice at you know like convers, it's kind of self-fulfilling but conversations about money don't happen that often in the public sphere in a kind of very personal way And so they're then difficult to kind of conduct in our day-to-day lives. And I found that, you know, I always really gravitate towards personal accounts of people's experiences of money, just because they're so few and far between. And I found that, you know, with the work that I've done over the past couple of years, something that people have really responded to and gravitated towards has been those really honest conversations about money. Like for instance, when I have them on my podcast, it's because, they're so rare. So it's just not something that we have a lot of practice at either.
1: I'm assuming a lot of these things that you write about in the book are things that you why well, not. I know that a lot of these things you're writing about in the book are things you've been thinking about and like permeating on for a really long time. Um, and so I just think it's a really fascinating framework. And I, I really, really love this book. Um, you talk in it about your childhood and growing up in South London so can you tell our listeners a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah so I was born in Nigeria but my family moved to London to South London when I was five years old and it's kind of like just kind of a classic immigrant story of you know wanting better opportunities for their children and you know I had a, a, a great childhood in in many respects you know I, I had a lot of fun like you know we never really wanted for anything in the sense that you know, there are always toys and, and food and parties and whatever, but we also didn't have a lot of money, just being perfectly honest. Like I grew up on a fairly rough, I guess where well, it was at the time, it's now kind of gentrifying, but I grew up on a fairly rough council estate in South London and um yeah, you know, especially in those early years when we first moved to this country, money was really tight. Like I, I mentioned in the book, I wasn't really aware of it at the time because I think when you're a child you just kind of very easily adapt to the life circumstances that you're dealt, with but you know, for my parents, I think it must have been a real adjustment because we were upper middle class, I'd say, in Nigeria, and then you come here, and you know, for various systemic reasons, you find yourself just like building from scratch. And you know, at the time, I wasn't aware of it, but as an adult, my parent, my dad, once told me about there was a time where I needed a new pair of school shoes, and like they just couldn't afford it, and he was so upset about it. But I didn't know that at the time, or I did kind of know it. Like I made this comment to him when I was a kid. Where I apparently was like, "Oh, we're as poor as church mice," and like I said, it really sort of like happily, because you're a kid and you just kind of deal with these things. But um, yeah, we, you know, money was was a source of stress in our house. Um, and though we, you know, we were never destitute or anything like that. You know, we always had food, the bills were always paid. Like life was fine. But I think that then that slight scarcity is something that kind of fed into my psyche as a child and teenager. And then, kind of, went on to influence my relationship with money as an adult.
1: Yeah, I, I, it was just fascinating to read the kind of details that you've remembered from that time. And um, it's also really interesting to hear that, because I know you've written about now how you've kind of um, switched class identity. And it's interesting to hear that you've that's this isn't the first time that that's happened in your life.
0: Yeah, exactly. You know, I, I kind of pick up the book. You know, from the age of five. But yeah, you're right. I didn't mention that. You know, we were very much upper middle class when we were in Nigeria. Like we had a driver, we had a chauffeur, and you know, these are also quite, I guess, quite normal things for for a certain sort of class of person in Nigeria. But yeah, then you kind of come to this foreign country. So I, I think it didn't make as much of an impression on me because I was so young. But you know, if yeah. that happened to me as an adult, then I think it would be much more of a formative influence in my life and I'm, I'm sure it was for my parents but yeah you know but then the thing that I also say is that I never fully identify as being working class in terms of my childhood because okay fine I grew up in council state didn't have a lot of money but the thing that I always say is that my parents are very well educated they have middle class values you know we were exposed to tons of culture and books they both have degrees education was always put to the forefront so we had a lot of Cultural capital, we just didn't Mm. have a lot of economic capital. And I do think that is an important thing to consider when you think about class, because I also, not to make assumptions, but I also imagine that other households who lived on that council estate didn't have that sort of cultural capital. Not all of them did. So I think you kind of have to look at the bigger picture when it comes to class. And I find it a bit tedious how, despite how class obsessed we are as a society here in Britain, people do still want to kind of put you in these boxes. And while as an adult, I'm very clearly staunchly middle class, just based on my education, uh, you know, the job I do, my financial status, I think there needs to be more room for nuance and for people to kind of be able to tell, like, the full trajectory if, if their trajectory has changed.
1: Absolutely. And you actually go into that in really in in, in depth in the book, Um I you touched there on your education and um you won a full scholarship to a private secondary school this seems to have it's uh, ex- altered your life experience and the course of your life quite a lot um can you talk to us about this
0: I mean yeah <laughs> having a private education is just a massive massive almost completely absurd advantage um and it's something that I wasn't as aware of as a kid you know because I was just like wow I get to go to this fancy school that has a swimming pool and tennis courts and you know it was just really fun um but my parents were very aware of the impact of it you know I, I think looking back on it it was such a big deal to them that I got into the school um and throughout the you know time I was at that school they were always like very on top of me with my grades and just making sure that I made the most of the opportunity but it's kind of really as I emerged into adulthood and into the working world and see how, especially within industries like media, but also, you know, so many industries, journalism, law, TV, you name it, they're all dominated by the privately educated. um, For, you know, all the kind of obvious reasons, you know, it's the fact that you're more likely to get the grades required to go to certain universities. But it's also about contacts and the networks which i've benefited from as well and also you know that kind of confidence like the way you are kind of taught to present yourself and to articulate yourself um and you know so it's like a mixture of like hard qualifications and soft skills and it's just something that is so it so divides our society which is mad because only seven percent of School children in the UK are privately educated and then you look at the stats of how they dominate you know all these so-called elite industries and how they dominate for instance Oxbridge entrance and it's very very clear that it's a hugely unfair advantage um and you know like I have absolutely no regrets and, and glad that I went to the school I did but more generally as a system I don't agree with private education I don't think it should be possible to buy your way into that level of advantage. Um, and yeah, as I say, it's just something that I've become so keenly aware of. I'm, I'm I'm really aware of how it benefits me and and the fact that I have certain contacts or sometimes people hear the name of my school and I think are more amenable to me as a result. I've definitely noticed that over the years. Um and that happens across the board. And okay, so I managed to kind of fluke into this advantage by virtue of getting a scholarship, but then there are also people who just pay their way into it. And I don't think that's fair.
1: It's probably, I mean, I was going to ask if you would have children of your own, I don't know how much thought you would give to something like this. I was going to ask, what I, what I do you have any ideas about how you'd want to educate them? But I think...
0: No, I've, I've given it some thought. I mean, the thing is, the thing that I always say as well, a really important part of this conversation is race. And I think it's really important that we consider, you know, for me, I've always felt like getting the education I did mitigates the fact that I come from you know I have an identity that is very marginalized and so I almost feel like it kind of puts me on an equal footing with with you know white people like it's given me these advantages to kind of even out I mean it's not like exact maths but I always think about it in that context um to be honest the reason I wouldn't send my kids to private school if, if I had kids isn't actually to do with the morality like I'll be very honest it's not to do with the morality of it because as long as that system is still there then I do understand people particularly black parents who choose to capitalize on that for their children I have you know a lot of black friends who are mums and who are parents who kind of ask me my opinions on it and I might honestly just do what you have to do for your kid like we live in a very racist society and in a racist country and if that's an advantage that you can secure for your black child then by all means go for it but I think for me the reason I probably wouldn't do it isn't to do with the morality. And this is also assuming that I have kids and that money isn't an issue here, but it's actually just to do with the world view that I find that a lot of privately educated people have and how sheltered they are. And I you know, I slightly recoil when I encounter people and find that they're privately educated, if I'm being honest, because I think the specific circumstances that I have mean that I do have a very um broad world view and i kind of know how both sides of the coin operate but i do find that most private educated people that i know are very very sheltered and i would not want that for my child um and so that's the i'm like the kind of person that i would want my child to be does not fit with often the sort of privately educated people that i encounter just being
1: perfectly honest i i really appreciate your honesty and Yeah, you have such fascinating opinions and insights. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, In your chapter, Dreaming Spires, you write about the multi-layers of privilege, people who claim to be self-made and the drawbacks of those who create inaccurate pictures of the ease of personal professional success. How would you like to see these stories shift and how beneficial do you think that would be? I mean, I just think people should be more honest about
0: the advantages they've had. Like, it's really not hard. (laughs) I just, it's so fascinating. And it's something that I'm at great pains to do, even when kind of telling my own story. Like, I think an advantage that I've had is the fact that my parents live in London and definitely kind of in my mid-twenties when I, like, blew up my life and quit my job, the fact that they lived in London and I was able to move back in with them rent-free was really beneficial for, for so many reasons. Actually, quite financial but actually I had savings so it wasn't really that but it did kind of give me breathing space essentially to not have to worry about money um and I always kind of am keen to say that because especially when I was running this platform Women Who that I used to run people would be like oh are you is that your main thing is that what you're living off and I was like no I don't make money out of this like I or I don't make a lot of money out of this like part of the reason that I have the time and I'm able to do this is because I'm living with my parents and that gave me the space to kind of pursue this passion project so I just wanted to be really clear because people would always be like oh I'm gonna quit my job and do something similar and I'd be like we are not necessarily in the same financial situation so just (laughs) hold that thought but more generally I I think the reason people are kind of dishonest about that sort of thing is because they think that it takes away from their achievements and you know what maybe it does you know maybe that context does you know the context of say having been privately educated or having had parents who pay your rent or having had xyz advantages maybe that does make it a little bit impressive but you still have that thing so like does it really take that much out of you You know i describe in the book as a sort of a kind of social tax you know if you have the good fortune to have these advantages then the least you could do is be honest about it so that other people you know don't measure themselves up to uh, situations or circumstances that are unachievable for them. You know, if you were able to set up a business because your parents invested fifty grand in it from the get go, other people who also want to set up businesses should know that because that's not necessarily something that they have access to. And I think that applies across the board when it comes to like property ownership, which is like such a big thing for me. It has been such a big thing throughout the course of my twenties. You kind of see people who you know, kind of show off their homes or just kind of talk about getting onto the property ladder without mentioning the fact that, especially in London, getting parental help to get onto the property ladder is pretty much the only way that the vast majority of people manage it, especially, you know, if you're under the age of 35. Um, And I just think it helps other people to just have the full picture. Um, But people are really reluctant to do that um and so you know I I think it's just beneficial for all sorts of reasons but yeah we'll see how I just want more honesty around that basically
1: some of the things in the book that I read definitely made me feel uncomfortable right like I have so many layers of privilege in a multitude of ways but like it's that uncomfort and that just it's that discomfort that's so important to sit with and unpack and like through that we can then reach well, we'll have a better chance of reaching a place where we can be more honest. Yeah, exactly. Hold
2: up.
1: I've been thinking a lot this year about how a very specific portion of the public are obsessed with the Royals (laughs) and how perhaps it's linked to the way they view their identity and also their self-worth. I know the British class system is something you give a lot of thought to. I was wondering if you had any thoughts on the Royal family and our relationship with them (laughs) and this specific portion of the public who are obsessed and <laughs> cannot hear anything negative about them I
0: mean I find the royal family just such I'm you know a republican like I I don't think that the royal family or the monarchy should exist and if it were up to me they'd be abolished um but I'm also fairly sort of laissez-faire about it like I'm just like they're there in an ideal world they wouldn't be I find all the drama around them fairly entertaining but in the same way that I find you know the kardashians entertaining yeah. like it's almost like a reality tv show like they're so messy it's kind of hilarious um but then i find it strange that you know people who otherwise believe in social mobility and in social equality are still kind of attached and i even say, say this about you know sort of some of my friends still have this attachment to the royal family and i'm like they are the apotheosis of inequality like this idea that you are born into a family that is entitled to all these things, you have this really privileged, cosseted lifestyle, which is paid for by the state, is completely at odds with, if you value social justice or social equality in any way, then you cannot be pro-royal family. Um, but in terms of the national obsession with it, I think it's that's just tradition, isn't it? Like, I think right. it's just, I, I don't really understand why people feel the need to defend this family who, <laughs> haven't really done much for them I'm, I'm you know i i I do know that the royals work and they work fairly hard i'm sure their schedules are way more hectic than mine if i'm being perfectly honest but also that is a choice and they do that in exchange for getting an absurd advantage which so i kind of think that's fair enough if somebody was paying me a two million pound stipend or more a year then I'd be fairly okay with working as hard as they do. So I, I, I just, oh, it's a, it's a weird phenomenon. I, I don't know, I don't really talk about the royals that much beyond just kind of tweeting about whatever snafu they've just made because I just find it quite a tedious um, institution.
1: I loved your chapter, The Beauty Tax, and We Need to Talk About Money. Um, It delves into how tied women are to keeping up appearances and I and not just in how we look, but also the homes that we keep and the kind of every every kind of aspect of our lifestyles that we're very keen to portray, um, specifically on social media. Let's talk about contemporary beauty standards are we making any progress at all?
0: No. (laughs) In a (laughs) word, no. Because, you know, something that I didn't get into in the book because I was just sort of, it's something that I want to maybe explore in more length and like elsewhere. But a lot of the focus on contemporary beauty standards at the moment is about diversifying, you know, the conception of what is considered beautiful so it's not just like thin, white, young, able-bodied women. Um, which is admirable in itself like I do think it serves a purpose to, to broaden um, our ideas of, of what is beautiful but also they still doing that still makes you know beauty the kind of fundamental standard by on appearances the fundamental metric against which women are judged and appraised and I often think that okay so it's, it's it's all well and good kind of trying to widen our you know representation and have more diverse women in, in the media and in the public eye and in fashion but wouldn't it be better if we were just sort of trying to downplay the importance of beauty full stop because now the message is that everyone is beautiful which is great but I'm like why does it matter for us to be beautiful you know that is actually I think the more interesting conversation um but that aside I mean you know there've been, there's definitely been progress made in the past, you know, decade in terms of the representation of different sorts of women in the public eye, um, but at the same time, the standards at which ordinary women are expected to adhere to are phenomenally high. Like I, I sometimes look at photos of like, you know, A-list actresses in like the '90s and like the early noughties and sort of like red carpet premieres, and not to be rude to them, but their level of grooming was so much lower
2: mm. than what is
0: expected now certainly of actresses, but even of normal women. And I'm like, in the past 10, 20, 30 years, the standards that women are expected to adhere to have gotten so much higher. And it's trickled down to even ordinary women because previously you might only see like an A-list actress in like in the cinema or in a glossy magazine. And that was it. But now we have the internet and social media. So every single day I wake up and I'm confronted with photos of these unfathomably beautiful women who have not only are they genetically blessed but they also have an incredible amount of time and money to spend on their appearance like it is literally part of their job requirement and there is no way that that does not filter into the ordinary women's kind of expectations of of um what she should look like or what her home should look like and at the same time there's a kind of uh, deception from a lot of these women about the lengths that they go to to maintain their appearances. So they deny plastic surgery, they deny doing this, they're like, oh I just drink two litres of water a day. And it's like you have had plastic surgery. Like you have a dermatologist on call. Like you do all sorts of stuff to your face and your body and you're lying about it. Because also beauty work isn't necessarily seen as something to be proud of. Um so I yeah, I don't think we're making progress in in in, in any shape or form really.
1: Yeah it, it's it's fascinating. It made me Like this chapter made me really think about how much enjoyment I get on the money that I spend on my appearance, whether that's like little things like getting my eyebrows tinted and waxed and like lockdown was actually an interesting process and journey, I think, for a lot of us when it comes to the money and the time that we spend on our, you know, beauty regime and that kind of thing. But I'm so with you. I so want this to happen. I so want us to all collectively care less about appearance and beauty and these standards that we uphold. But it's going to, how difficult is it going to be to get there?
0: I mean, incredibly so, because there are also a lot of people who are financially invested in women not liking their appearances. You know, that is basically what, you know, the beauty industry is built on um and you know capitalism is a very powerful force advertising is a very powerful force i know that because i worked in it there are people there are so many companies and corporations invested in making women feel inadequate and that messaging works like we don't grow up or you're not born wishing for you know double D breaths or thinking that your pores are too big or thinking you need to pluck your eyebrows really you know human beings have always naturally beautified themselves but not to the extent and not requiring the level of intervention that we now do in the 21st century and you know I think as long as there are financial incentives for people to to do that um then beauty standards are going to remain unfathomably high and also as I discuss in the book There is like an economic reward for being, you know, a beautiful woman or at least a well-groomed woman. Like something that I found when I was doing research for this book, which didn't surprise me at all, was that women who are perceived as well-groomed earn more money than their so-called poorly-groomed counterparts. There are numerous studies that show that. And it applies to men as well. But obviously the pay differential is more pronounced when looking at women because women's appearances are so paramount to everything they do. Um so there is like an economic penalty to not adhering to kind of the social expectations of of how a woman should present herself as well. And you have to be incredibly strong willed to decide to ignore that. Like I know I'm not strong willed enough to do that. Like I know the fact that I present myself in a certain way, albeit it often feels, you know, like I'm a willing participant in that. But I also know it opens certain doors for me that might not otherwise be open. Like I'm very clear about that. Um And especially when you do any kind of public-facing work, you know, I'm not an actress, I'm not a musician, and yet I'm subtly aware of the ways in which my appearance factors into how people receive my work or if my work even gets looked at, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, it really does. It really does. Thank you. Um, I love hearing you talk about code switching. Can you tell us about this? Do you think... We all do it with without potentially realizing,
0: yeah, I mean code switching is like a very natural human phenomenon, and it's it's not always a bad thing like it's it's really a sign of emotional intelligence like being able to adapt the way you you know interact and present yourself according to the situation so as I say in the book, you know the way you handle yourself when you're having like lunch with your granny versus the way you handle yourself if you're in a meeting at work versus the way you handle yourself if you're you know out at a bar with your friends like you are showing and hiding i guess different elements of your personality and there isn't necessarily anything wrong with that i think where it becomes more toxic is when you consider the fact that for certain marginalized identities so the example that i use in um in the book is obviously my own example of being a black woman in the workplace but it applies to you know all people of color or if you're working class or if you're an L, you know from the lgbtq plus community you know there is a kind of like social norm and you will find yourself changing your personality and the way you conduct yourself more to fit in with it and more to seem palatable and it's something that as a black woman I'm very very aware of and I say this as a black woman who I think probably conforms to you know various palatability and respectability politics and that I know that people perceive me a certain way because of, say, my accent, which is quite posh. Also, I've been told versus if I actually sounded like I grew up on like a South London capitalist estate. I know that people perceive me differently, and you know, I've had situations which I detail in the book where those where those kind of you know preconceptions have become very clear. Um, but it's also you know kind of downplaying your ethnic identity, and, and I definitely know that there are times in my life, definitely in my kind of teens or my early 20s where I've kind of been careful not to appear like quote unquote too black um, because I'm worried about being stereotyped or or I just know that that's not what that environment calls for and that stuff is really emotionally and mentally taxing it takes an effort to do that stuff even if it becomes instinctive it, it does take an effort it does take it out of you and I think you only realise it when you are finally in situations where you no longer have to do that, Um, which is kind of how I feel now in my career. And I I feel really lucky to, essentially I'm kind of paid to be myself and paid to share my ideas. And so I don't find myself having to code switch very much, if at all, anymore. Um, But then it suddenly makes me realise how much of it I was doing when I worked in certain environments and and how exhausting it was.
1: I would love to dive in and talk about social social media and performative allyship which is something that you wrote about in your essay "White," which came out last year which is such a brilliant brilliant essay. How much do you think social media activism distracts from genuine dismantlement of oppressive systems? The thing about social media is that it can be a really sort
0: of it can be a force for good when it comes to activism. Like, I think, you know, it helps spread awareness and I think it can be a place that helps people organize. I think we saw that a lot last year with um, some of the Black Lives Matter protests. I think it was a really valuable information source that is kind of, isn't necessarily controlled by any gatekeepers. Like, it's much more democratic. And in some cases, was used to kind of fundraise and marshal significant funds for really important causes like, you know, bail funds in the U S they raised tens and tens of millions of dollars. And I think that was very much down to social media. And I think, I think that's brilliant. I think where it becomes trickier is where people think that posting things on social media um, or liking things on social media, or even reading things on social media is a substitute for actually acting and actually changing the way they conduct themselves in their lives and i think it's very easy to kind of be lulled into a false sense of security and think oh because i like that because i shared that that kind of makes me one of the good ones and i say this as it relates to all social causes not just you know racism um but also you know transphobia or homophobia all these things i think people kind of think okay well i've shared i've reposted this link you know to donate to this petition so that's my good deed for the day and i think it just allows people, I think, to to be satisfied with not doing very much. And also, it's often very inaccurate. Like, I think there's a real problem with fact-checking and the, you know, the nature of information that's shared on social media. So much of it is, is inaccurate and is not in any way verifiable. But people just, I, I don't know why, but they really just kind of take what they see on social media as fact and don't seem to question it at all and don't seem to go on to do any further research, which, again, I think is is really, really dangerous. So, uh, yeah, I kind of, I, I tend not to, yeah. I mean, I, I do sometimes share things on social media, but a lot less now. I, I, I you know, I, I, I tend not to, and I kind of just tend to do what I do privately.
1: I think what's quite, um, I'm, I'm, I'm touching on what you said a bit, like um, what's dangerous about the, lack of fact checking in a lot of these posts is that often because they're you know we the internet runs on outrage right so if they're kind of more sensational sensationalized they do better and then you get into this hole of like spreading perhaps misinformation
0: right it's like the incentives you know social media incentivizes kind of things that are you know you people want to get engagement and so it Incentivizes people sensationalizing things and cutting out the nuance and sharing things that you know are very shareable but not necessarily particularly intelligent or well sourced. Um, and also, especially with Instagram, it incentivizes sharing things that are aesthetically pleasing. And so many of the issues that are discussed, you know, when it comes to social justice, are not aesthetically pleasing. There is no kind of pretty sheen that you can wrap racism up in, and that was something that really disturbed and enraged me actually last year after george floyd was killed was how i felt a lot of people and particularly a lot of white people kind of moved toward or just kind of instinctively instinctively try to kind of beautify it so that whatever they were posting still fitted in with their instagram feeds and i was like there is no beauty to be found in any of this like it's a horrendous state of affairs and i i just yeah i just i found that really disturbing
1: Yeah, I have a friend who um, is really involved in social justice, justice and climate justice, specifically, I should say, offline. And she always says, you can't market your way out of the climate crisis. You can't market your way out of racism, Um, which always sticks with me. I always have, I always think about her words. Um, I know you love fashion and I love your outfit posts on Instagram. I got the impression from one of your podcasts that sometimes you feel conscious that your interest in fashion might distract from your writing and journalism. Um, perhaps i that's an assumption on my part, but um, could you talk a little bit about this and perhaps explain where you're at with it now?
0: No, it's not an assumption at all. That is definitely something I've talked about. And it's funny enough, I've actually written an article about it that's coming out fairly soon, or at some point in the next month or so. I love fashion, I love clothes, I love shopping. Um, And it's always been a love of mine. And I take real pleasure in it and and, in finding outfits and putting things together and just kind of seeing what's out there. But I think being, especially if you kind of have a bit of an Instagram following, I think the way the media treats young, I guess I'm still young, young youngish women, youngish creatives, youngish writers who are women, um, if they, essentially kind of have a bit of an Instagram following or are into fashion or kind of share lifestyle content is that they tend to kind of diminish the value of their work and the seriousness of their work and I think for a long time and still to an extent now I was very conscious of that and so I'd say no to certain opportunities and I wouldn't share you know my fashion on my Instagram as much just because I was worried that it would detract from my work and I am primarily a writer and and the thing that I want to be known for is my writing and I I really I work really hard at it and so I I want it to remain credible and and for it to be taken seriously and so I think I just felt quite self-conscious about that and I think I didn't want to be perceived as like an influencer with a capital I like I think anyone who kind of has like a bit of a social media following kind of qualifies as an influencer with a little I even if you're like Michelle Obama like she has a platform she has influence that makes her an influencer if that makes sense. But
2: yeah. I didn't want
0: to be seen as like a sort of fashion influencer or blogger, even though I'm really kind of interested in fashion. Um and then yeah, I interviewed a journalist on my podcast, Marjon Carlos, who um is a former Vogue uh culture and fashion writer. And she was just such a breath breath she was just such a breath of fresh air about it. And essentially was like, look, you've done the work, so nobody can really take that away from you. And you should feel free to share and post and indulge in in you know your love of fashion as much as you want, and you know also a lot of the people that she cited and people that you know I look up to. You've kind of got Chimamanda Ngozi Teacher, or you've got Maya Angelou. These are all people who, you know, Chimamanda has like this incredible fashion Instagram. Maya Angelou, you know, she loved to go out and dance, she loved to go out and party. These are people who had other interests besides work and writing, and weren't afraid to indulge in them and to show them off. And it, 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 as long as your writing stands up, then essentially just kind of encouraged me to have a slightly more kind of like sod it attitude and think I'm just going to share what I want to share um so that is kind of where I'm at with it now just kind of being like I don't really care what people think about about that um I don't really I don't know it's just if people if we're still stuck in an age where a woman who's seen as being interested in fashion that's seen as being mutually exclusive of being intellectual or cerebral then that is other people's problem but it's it's not mine
1: that's awesome I love that I loved that episode of your podcast I'll leave it um in the episode notes and I love that it's had that positive uh impact on you and that's why I love podcasts because I feel if we well, are interview doing this podcast I, I feel like I always come away with things I can action in my own life and I actually genuinely do so I love that that happened for you how would you feel about doing a quick fire
0: yes let's go for it
1: Quick fire with a taker. Wake up early or have a lion.
0: I'm actually a wake up early person, which is such a surprise to me because I'm inherently quite a lazy person. But my body clock just seems to get
1: up with the sun these days. So wake up early. Breakfast, lunch, or dinner. Dinner. Tea or coffee. Tea. House plants or fresh cut flowers.
0: Fresh cut flowers. I love flowers.
1: Bookshops or clothing stores. <laughs>
0: oh gosh clothing stores
1: the truth is out
0: (laughs) the truth is out
1: podcasts or netflix
0: oh that's a good one it used to be podcasts but i think i'm more of a netflix person now actually
1: stay in or go out
0: pre-pandemic it would have been stay in but post-pandemic i want to get out as much as i possibly can
1: same sunrise or sunset
0: sunset nothing like a beautiful sunset
1: and finally routine or spontaneity
0: spontaneity
1: final couple of questions what is your one non-negotiable daily self-care habit
0: Hmm. I do think it's a cup of tea like I really just it it centers me it grounds me it's like that's how I take time for myself in the middle of the day is just making a cup of tea
1: love that how do you take your tea what's your favorite kind of tea
0: I have quite strong, just like English breakfast tea. So I have PG tips and then I have oat milk now. I switched from dairy to oat milk about a couple of months ago, maybe the end of last year, Um, just, you know, trying to consume less dairy. And it's just so seamless. Like I don't know why I didn't do it before.
1: Delish. Um, Is there anything you've read recently that you would recommend
0: I am currently reading Conversations on Love by Natasha Lunn who is a features editor at Red Magazine and she has this incredible newsletter Conversations on Love which is running for years which is just interviewing utterly fascinating people about um, their kind of take on love and their relationships and not just romantic love but also familial love, friendship, finding love, what to do when love ends and it is actually out in mid-July I believe and it's Just the most insightful book I've ever read, or the most insightful commentary I've ever read about love. And it's so uncliched, and she's so smart, and and she is a friend of mine as well. But it's just, it's really blowing me away. So I would really, really recommend it. It's a brilliant newsletter and an even better book.
1: Can't wait to subscribe to the newsletter. Can't wait to read the book. Thank you. Uh, If you could advise listeners to do or try one thing today to help them find joy, what would it be?
0: say no more <laughs> oh such a good one I'm very good at saying no to stuff. probably too good I mean it mostly in a professional context um but I've learned over the years of being self-employed is that it's just it's just never fun to go through commitments that you just deep down don't want to do so now I just say no
1: <laughs> it's also so difficult flaking on them in the last minute like it makes you yeah, feel it exactly. makes me actually just feel like awful inside doing that at the last minute the question I always
0: ask myself is how are you going to feel about this on the day that it's set to happen and if you know you're going to be dreading it and dragging your feet the morning of then you should just say no
1: you have the best advice thank you (laughs) and finally what is one thing you hope your older self will have achieved that is such a good question
0: I, I just Honestly, more professional successes. Like I, I feel like I've sort of had like a good first phase of my career, but I very much see it as the first phase and my ambitions for where my career, where I want it to go are so much higher um, in terms of what I want to achieve, just creatively, you know, for myself, um, but also in terms of what impact I want to have. So... I hope that, you know, in 10, 20 years time, I get to look back and think, oh, all the stuff you did, you know, by the age of 30, that was just like small frying in comparison to what you managed to go on to do.
1: That's awesome. I'm sure you will. I just think you, everything you do is so exceptional. And I can't wait to watch that all unfold for you. Atega, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure.
0: You too. It's been really lovely chatting. Thank you for having me.
1: Thanks so much for listening to this episode. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you're new to all the small things, please do be sure to subscribe. I'd love to have you back each and every week. You can also share the show with a friend or on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venetia La Manor and at ATST Podcast. I'll see you back here next week, same time, same place with the brand new episode. And in the meantime, I hope you're taking good care of yourself and prioritizing the small things that bring you joy. See you soon.